Welcome to Entrepreneurial Reality with Bash. Every week we'll be speaking to startup and scale-up founders to learn about them, their ambitions for the business, goals and objectives. Every conversation is a moment in time, documenting entrepreneurs' current situation with a view to coming back next year to see how they are getting on. Each journey will be different. Each innovation could be game-changing. I hope you enjoy. Entrepreneurial Reality with Bash, Series 1, Episode 17. And I am very pleased to have with me today an amazing guest, Amanda Thompson. Hi, Amanda. Hi, thank you. That's lovely to be called amazing. I've had one of those days where I'll take that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is a person, for the benefit of the listeners, who has had a very successful career in the world of BBC and decided to give all of that up to move to France. And the reason why was to do with champagne. So Amanda, if you could be so kind as to give us a bit of background as to how you got to this day today, that would be great. Sure. So I grew up um, when I was young with a health food entrepreneur mother, um, but not in the romantic sort of sense today where it's achingly fashionable. And this was sort of delivering muesli on a bike, single mother, putting food on the table. And it was just really in her DNA, um, really early stage, just to be mindful of, of produce, you know. And, and, and so it's kind of funny now when I, when I look back um, full circle, she gave up way before the tipping point. Um, I don't know if you've read the, the, the uh, Malcolm Gladwell book, but, 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 you know, she was too early, you know, much before Planet Organic, Whole Foods. And um, so I guess there was entrepreneurialism in my blood to that extent, but I've only really recognized that recently. My father was, was an immigrant and my parents split when I was young. Um, so I think I'd always had, um, you know, a bit of a focus on, on looking after myself in a way and knowing that, that I really had, had to rely on myself ultimately. Um, but I worked as a broadcaster, so, so nothing, nothing to do with, with that sort of space, health foods or, or entrepreneurialism. And I like to drink a whole lot of champagne, <laughs> too much champagne. Um, <laughs> champagne was my poison, as it were. And that's what made me feel good. It gave me a buzz. Um, and ultimately, my business started really with a why. Um, I think all the corporates now are trying to bolt their why back onto their reason for existing. My business started with a why. Um, I wanted to party and I wanted to feel good in the morning. And my kind of light bulb moment, because I was a terrible hard news journalist, I, I've got way too much um, sort of personality, too handsy, I smile too much, too animated. And I ended up in the fun, fun stuff, art, so film, fashion, music. So often, back in the old days before social media, you would party and you would get up TV, you know, pop a load of makeup on, get your hair done, and you'd be on telly the next morning. And I started to look at champagne as a category, not just what I was enjoying drinking and, and the, the label, but this kind of crazy moment where I was like, geez, you know, sugar is being added to champagne and wine and other stuff and no one's really talking about that and the whole seed of the idea really was this crazy realization that wine was technically the only legal consumable I could think of if you think about you know foodstuffs soft drinks legal drugs where technically I can offer you a glass of wine tonight. You say to me, what are we drinking? You have no idea actually what's in the bottle and the stuff that's added. And for me, that was kind of a a crazy realization. And I thought, well, there's got to be a a business in that. And that was kind of where it started, really. 
Okay. So how did you then move from being at parties, being on television, to then making the leap of faith to Paris? <laughs> so I always um, sort of smile to myself when I sort of follow entrepreneurs' stories, because often it's kind of reduced to a, to, to a soundbite, isn't it? You know, oh yeah, it was really easy, you know, moved to Paris, did this. I mean, yeah, it was kind of crazy, really. I look back and I think, God, you know, I can't quite believe I even did that when I look back on, on my own, in inverted commas, crazy decision. Yeah, I've got kids. I had a husband. I still, still got the same husband, I'm pleased to say, because this business is not, not great for relationships. We moved to Paris. I, I was sort of um, a classic journalist in the sense that I researched the best teacher and spent a long time doing that and the best course. And that happened to be in Paris. Now, obviously, romantic, beautiful place to study um but we were a two-income family so I, I you know I was giving up an income a career moving children there you know so it, it was quite a, a big decision I guess to do that but I was all in conceptually at that point um and of course ignorance is bliss I think yes I guess so were you studying then part-time yeah yeah no I, I studied full-time actually for one year and racked up some credit card debts and um uh, you know, anyone listening, I'm not not recommending that. I mean, it, the question about whether you have a plan B, I don't know, you know, and I didn't really have a, a plan B. I suppose I wouldn't have been homeless because I had my husband was working. So, so it wasn't like I put myself, you know, in a dangerous situation to that extent. Um, but the debts were racking up and I then spent actually three years in Paris. So I threw myself into full-time studies initially and then really immersing myself in the business of wine and a commercial sense and relationships and understanding. So I was three years um, with my family in, in France in all. And was that where the business actually started or did you move back to the UK before you started the business? Yeah, I was never in my mind going to try and sell snow to the Eskimos and launch <laughs> a business in Paris. I mean, the, the recent politics of, of Paris aside, um, obviously, Actually, Macron's been doing some really interesting things um, in the startup space, in the tech space recently. So I think had I now lived in Paris, perhaps I might think a bit differently. I think there's a much more innovative culture than, than when I was there a few years back. But selling champagne and starting a champagne business in Paris, no, I think that would probably have been a step too far in my mind. And I, and I kind of um, had this idea that, you know, if you can make it in the London wine business, you can pretty much make it anywhere because the London wine business is known for being notoriously old school, notoriously hard to permeate, notoriously everything that kind of a woman going in to, to do something that no one's ever done before probably must have been feeling very competitive about at the time, but looks back on and think, God, I had big balls then. I bet you still have. <laughs> uh, the, um, uh, the education, you, you said you researched the best of the best. So who was that yeah. for the benefit of the well, it was Yeah, it was a, a sommelier called Franck Romage who was um, working and had created a new course actually at Le Cordon Bleu, which is the world-renowned cookery school. And so many wine courses, um, almost all wine courses, are either based on studying quite a sort of perfunctory formulaic way you know you're looking at acidity and you're you're marking on sheets is it medium medium plus you know it's all quite sort of uh, almost just just reduced to tick boxes in, in in my sort of outside in sort of understanding 
or you're, you're sort of doing training where you want to become a sommelier, which is a fantastic training and can be desperately exciting and romantic if, you, if, if that's what you want to do. But again, a bit like taught, you've got so much to learn about appellations and vintages. And again, so many facts. And for me, the romance of wine was what was so important and what I fell in love with and why champagne made me feel good. And so I was really looking for something where I could combine my learning with a, a, a real romantic sort of passionate approach and say what you like about the French, but that really is kind of where they excel. And so that was really my reason for choosing this particular course. And actually uh, the world's most famous sommelier, a, a, a gentleman who anyone who knows anything about wine has probably heard of called Gérard Basset, who's an incredible um, sommelier and, and, and sort of teacher now. Um, he happened to have a restaurant not far from me. He originally had set up Hotel Divan. And so sort of classic journalist, early days, I, I went to try and speak to anybody I could about how I might get into a world that was notoriously hard to permeate. And he was one of the, the key people who was really helpful to me early days and, and kind of the antithesis of a lot of that kind of slightly snooty um, wine business that still exists uh, very strongly to this day. So let's talk about that a, a little bit more. You said it's quite traditional, quite snooty. And how did you tell yourself, come on, this is what I want to do. This is my passion. It's a romantic product. I'm going to see this through. The negativity that you faced, how did you overcome that? And what type of negativity was it? Oh, well, I think there's, I mean, there's negativity on a daily basis. I think if you're an entrepreneur of any sort, um, I think that probably with my age, being in my 40s and it not being, you know, my first career, having huge tenacity and really believing in my gut that I was onto something. I think um, when I spend time with other entrepreneurs from all, all walks of business, I think, you know, if you have that initial gut belief, I think that's where it really almost has to, has to start. I think the key for me always was this vision that I was not going to be like them and I wasn't even going to see myself as a wine business, actually. And right from day one, we've always perceived ourselves and positioned ourselves as a lifestyle business, not a wine business. And, and that was really so important to me because I, I understood fashion, I understood music and the arts and everything that was exciting for me in the world with tech, with everything was about collaboration and diffusion and about not being categorized. And I could just see that so much of the traditional wine business was full of old white men. And that's not to say I haven't got many friends who are old white men um, and I'm married to a lovely middle-aged white man. But the point being that if you perceive wine and alcohol in many ways in the same way that, that you might perceive tobacco and I, I think in, you know that is arguably the way um, alcohol is going globally to a great extent I felt like the world was about to divide in the alcohol space and I, I felt like young people were either being lost to the cocktail and spirits fun world in inverted commas or to the idea of actually not drinking I mean my teenage daughter doesn't drink alcohol at all <laughs> kind of bad for the family business but that's another story um so so actually um going back to your question 
um, I think the, the, the arrogance almost, I think that's how it's been perceived sometimes when people, people look at me, was I, I don't really see myself as a wine business. I don't see myself as like those people. You know, and one of the first things I, I always do if I'm at a tasting with people who um, don't know anything about wine and have just come to taste a, a lovely champagne or Prosecco, you know, and, and particularly younger people, they'll say to me, what should I taste? Well, tell me, what should I be getting here? And I'll say, well, I'm happy to do all of the tasting in a formal way with you. But first of all, do you like it? It's fun. What separates one beautiful drink from another? The passion, the story, it's fun. It's alcohol. We shouldn't really be doing it technically, you know. So, so, so that was really how I suppose I had the, in inverted commas, arrogance to really keep on and start and begin and, and, and still continue that journey. From the beginning of creating Thompson and Scott, how has the journey been to date uh, from a business perspective? <laughs> I mean, you you name every, you know, if you give me a, a list, I think um, part of the entrepreneurial journey and part of the reason why everyone says they'll never do it again and then they always do is you're living in a, a constant state of kind of crazy adrenaline, you know, where the highs are super high, the lows are super low. And just as you're sort of gasping your breath to enjoy something great, the next kind of metaphorical fire is just about starting and you've got to fight it. And that's the same of any business. I've spoke, you know, I understand that now. Now, when I speak to big leaders, you know, the EY Entrepreneur of the Year, people who are worth billions, the journeys are always the same. I think if you've starting a, started or starting a business from a blank sheet of paper, then I think there are always similarities that, that, that every entrepreneur will face. So I guess it depends on an hourly, hourly basis, you know. I mean, occasionally you wake up and you go, why the hell did I do this? You know, you sort of romanticise the corporate world. <laughs> <laughs> so between now and then, you actually won some awards, haven't you? So you mentioned DY. Yeah, that was a lovely, a lovely award. Um, because for me, awards, are, they're nice to from a sort of external gratitude point of view. But, but for me, they're really worth something if they offer you something where you can really learn. And where, where EY really came into its own, I, I was one of their um, winning women last year, um, and that was a new programme they'd, they'd cleverly set up, recognising that not only were women not always putting themselves forward for early awards and therefore not, not picking up the awards later, but, you know, just from a scalability perspective, the way the ecosystem goes with us being, you know, it's harder for us to get VC funding, you know, all the stories that are out there. They were wanting to find entrepreneurs early stage who were women who did have big ambition and then they wanted to really um, identify us early, you know, so that we're on, on their radar and have their network. And that actually had... Um, a hugely beneficial part for me last year when I went to, um, they have what's called a, a strategic growth forum in America in Palm Springs. And I was combining that with some meetings about our development. And of course, what the Americans do brilliantly is the, um, the positivity and the high-fiving and the kind of almost the antithesis to, to being um, a startup founder in London where, you know, everything's kind of doom and gloom all about dark humour and the world's always about to end for us, you know, until we make the next joke. And, and that was a, that, that American piece, albeit not very British and, and whether it, it does or doesn't come to anything, it's quite empowering just for a brief moment to be buoyed up by, by that sort of excitement of course you come back to 
your London office and everyone's going, right, you know, if you don't you dare high five me, I'll punch you in the face. But, you know, it's fun to be part of that for a while. <laughs> so true. Oh. Um, so how did you get the company off the ground in terms of finding the grapes, finding the production sites, the distilleries, etc., the fermentation unit? Sure. Um, well, that's an interesting question. So, so the way that my brand works is we collaborate with fantastic top existing wine producers. And again, to go back to my understanding of fashion and, and partnerships and collaborations, I recognize this kind of really interesting section of the wine business that's actually surprisingly big because you've got on the one hand the really big brands where it's all about the money and actually the liquid itself may be good but so much is going towards the brand and then obviously at the opposite end of the scale you've got what I call you know the, the kind of the, the garage wine you know um, five or six quid um, where actually with UK duty nothing's going to the liquid then in the middle of all of that you've got some incredible, what I suppose historically what we call artisan producers who are already making awesome wine, you know, in varying degrees of volume batches. But the interesting point for me was amongst all of these wonderful producers who are making wine in, in really the purest way, because I don't want to teach you or anyone who knows wine listening to suck eggs, but for me, the key way to understand my brand is that beautiful wine was always made historically without adding a ton of sugar and a ton of crap because that just masks imperfections. So exactly like processed food, to get to the point in the wine business where a lot of us unfortunately want to drink really cheap wine, to get to that point where that wine is palatable and the acidity is not too kind of awkward where you're kind of cringing and to get that volume and to get that at well under 10 pounds in the UK duty market where duty is high you add a ton of sugar and you add a ton of e-numbers or bits and bobs that, that, that nobody would really want to drink if they knew what they were drinking so the holy grail for me was always finding the right top producers who could collaborate with me under my brand under my recipe and where we could grow the volume to together to a, a point where it would be commercially viable. And the reason that um, that's worked touch wood in the right way for me is my top organic Prosecco producer. To meet our, our growing volumes internationally, you know, we've always sort of planned carefully with them. They now bring on more great producers to the organic way in that area of Italy. And so that goes back to our brand right from the get-go, having sustainability built into the model. You know, and, and and of course, the way the drinks industry is going is the stars are, are really aligned and coming towards my way of thinking, which is this idea of drink beautifully or, or don't drink at all. So, so my champagne maker um, actually was already at the top of his game, already making low dosage or no dosage champagne. And that means low or, or no added sugar. And actually last night, um, there was a piece on, on Channel 4, uh, you know, filming in our vineyards about our champagne. And so the idea with him, for example, because he was already doing very well in his own right, was to work with him under my brand, but with him as the name of the maker, you know, like a, a fashion or tech collaboration, because I'm all about smart partnerships. And then conversely, in the case of our Prosecco producer, they're doing some lovely private label stuff, but they were very happy that we really led with our brand there. So it's really on a case-by-case -case basis, but the brand is Thompson & Scott, and then we work with, with, with a collection of winemakers, all of whom, who can make incredible wine to my recipe. How do you ensure 
that the, the products that you are creating and selling through your own recipe are going to be organic and vegan. Interestingly, that is not as hard as you might imagine because the whole philosophy of my brand is only really to work with producers who are at the top of their game in terms of their capacity to already be making incredible wine. So actually they already have their official certifications and the brand will, will only ever work actually with, with, with top producers. I mean, for me, it's finding the, the commercial sweet spot within the incredible taste. I mean. For the one thing my teacher used to laugh at because he really thought I was crazy um, initially. He was like, Amanda, you're always looking for beautiful wine at a particular price. Because I, I was all about the tasting. I, I, the one thing I was good at in my course, I was terrible at the facts and figures and appellations and years and geography of France. I'm a damn good taster. I know what tastes amazing, you know, from all my time as a journalist, probably drinking too much wine. And so I was always looking for the perfect wine at the right price point. And so there are now in a lovely position, lots of wonderful winemakers um, who really would, would like to work with us. So that's not the issue. And, and actually, there's so many people making terrible wine full of terrible things, you know, cheap prices, whereas my brands almost flip that, that on its head. I mean, our prices are not like super high, but they're correct for the, the credentials. And of course that has been commonplace in, in produce and, and good food for quite some time, but it's not really been talked about in the drinks business to the, to the same extent. It's always nice to, to buy a very nice bottle of wine or uh, champagne, Prosecco, and you give it out to your friends like an event in, at Christmas, and then you see their reaction. As you know, it is a yes. good, good product, uh, something that will actually delight. And yeah, I, I get the impression what you're striving for and what you're delivering is that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think it was nice that you touched on, on that delight piece because ultimately, you know, it, it, it's wine. It's, you know, as I always say, you know, when I'm having a bad day to myself, to my team, to, to whoever, no one dies. You know, this is the wine business and, and it should be delighting. It should be fun, you know, and, and that's, that's the key really. You know, if it's not, bloody delicious i yeah i i wouldn't bother it's true so i've personally invested in craft beer a company called brewdog plc a long time ago and their focus is very much on quality and i appreciate it's a different category of alcoholic beverage but they strive for excellence and quality and uh, the sustainable nature and it is again a lifestyle brand so i i do see yeah the, that's the, interesting the similarities and they want they've been the fastest growing food and beverage organization over the past sort of five years in a row oh i know quite a lot about them my um sort of closest advisor uh comes from that sort of background and yes so i know quite a bit about that sort of movement and, and that's been quite an interesting one for me to study because as you say there are lots of differences but there are many similarities and for example the um, organic wine in can movement um, for me it, it was a game changer with craft beer and with, with Camden for example because they really helped to make young people see that you could have incredible products in can and of course all the 40-somethings my generation and up you know they're like oh my god you know wine and cans terrible so we've launched in in London just just this year what we believe is the first organic 
beautiful wine in can because of course that's the way to get rid of plastics you know at, at outside events because you mentioned that that's uh, a focus for you is the sustainable eco-friendly packaging absolutely and i had no idea probably like everything else <laughs> running a business starting a business I had no idea how hard it would be actually in the wine business in in the uk to to, to not use plastic i mean i was really shocked um when i first got into this business uh, you know in the logistics space deliveries you know it was really not easy for us initially to be doing what I thought was a no-brainer which was to be making sure we were not using plastic right from the start we were the first company I think to really put a PR spotlight on on not using plastic straws and having eco straws and, and thankfully everyone else has caught up very quickly with that piece but I think straws are brilliant. They're a metaphor, but they're just the tip of the iceberg to, to the amount of crap that uh, wine particularly and glass products are packaged in because, of course, there's the breakage issue. And the whole point of the can as well is to do with the amount of oxygen kept in the container that is yes. delivered to you. So if you reduce the amount of oxygen, uh, you reduce the likelihood of the degradation of flavour and quality of the content. Um, right. And, and that's... Another reason why moving to a can-based product is very valuable to the consumer's experience. Yeah, interesting. And that's that, I, I like that. I'm going to quote that when I'm getting, because it's funny, a lot of older people, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not using age in a negative sense, I, I'm in my 40s myself, but we have a really sort of snobby attitude really towards sort of wine and can. It's very interesting. We love turning all of that on its head. We've been doing huge amounts of um, kind of cool collaborations with luxury fitness brands, you know, with uh, with bars that are cool, vegan nights in Shoreditch. A any kind of forward thinking organization, a couple of tech brands, you know, they're all down with the cans. It's, it's more the old school that are just like, really, wine and can? You know, it's kind of funny. <laughs> But if you think about it, just very briefly, you open a bottle of champagne with all that excitement and then suddenly it's flat because it's been corked or just air's got into it and it becomes ruined. It's a major frustration if it's the only premium bottle of champagne available to share. And then you, you're right. rushing out to try and get another one. I'm going to try and, uh, try and talk to the CIVC, the, the champagne body, about champagne in can. Off with my head, I think that would be. At the moment, <laughs> at the moment we're allowed, um, we're allowed spark organic Italian wine in can. We certainly would not be allowed champagne or Prosecco. No, okay. So <laughs> the difference about the labelling, uh, you, you mentioned that there is a, a clear window into how your product is made. So how, how are you going to be delivering the information to the consumer via the labelling? Um, ben, it's been a lot harder than, than I expected. Um, we, we've had all manner of uh, controversies. I mean, we, we were very provocative, uh, squarely, to start with, because I, I was the first person legally in the world to put the word skinny and champagne together. And that was seen as very provocative, very controversial. And they're a hugely litigious body, this obviously you oversee um, the, the world of champagne. And, and so that was a real benchmark for me. But, but as an ex-journalist, I knew to, to start a champagne brand, which apparently is impossible and nobody ever does, I knew I needed um, not only a story, but something that really lit up the internet. And luckily it did. So we made a lot of noise globally on social media with that one. And then we 
went on to uh, put the words skinny and, sh- and prosecco together, which again went crazy. And, and really the idea for that was to enable me to, to put the spotlight on sugar being added to wine. And it did that beautifully. And now we've even got a few copycats, but we actually, the brand itself, the heritage qualitative kind of overarching brand is and always was Thompson & Scott. And we're at the stage now in the UK where luckily organic wine is now very much in the spotlight and a lot of producers can't get the volume and then the vegan element i mean i i'm all about zeitgeist as an ex-journalist married to a publicist but i had no idea that the rise of veganism um would be quite so strong so those two um sort of tick box elements of our brand have played so beautifully into our hands that we we've let skinny go um off the labels in the in the uk and then it's still on our labels internationally so we're really focused on building up the messaging around the organic piece interestingly a lot of um londoners think we're the only white, vegan wine brand and what that means to people listening is all my carnivorous friends are like oh my god what, what do you mean vegan wine you know i'm like no you can still have it with your steak it's fine we're just telling you that it's not been fined using any animal products and interestingly many wines are probably vegan but again it's all part of that kind of lack of transparency that the business has um, has dined out on so so their kind of lack of transparency plays beautifully into my brand's hands and Amanda, I, I live off a plant-based diet. I've been to vegan nights as well a number of times in short. Right. Amazing. So making it very clear to individuals like myself that it is vegan or vegan friendly uh, is very, very valuable indeed. I don't want to yeah. be drinking something uh, negligently that it's been produced and refined through fish bones, as an example. I right. would not want that at all. So, Interesting. Good. Yeah, that's, Good. That's, my, that's my viewpoint. So... You think skinny, you think champagne, you think Prosecco, you think Thompson and Scott. What is your current position? Are you looking for funding? So we're out on Crowdcube at the moment. Um, and that was really to build the PR and marketing. We've never had a marketing budget, but perhaps we can get into that later. We've done everything through word of mouth and storytelling and building a community at PR. We really love the idea of of being democratic in that sense, um, you know, and allowing people to put £10 in and have some ownership. I mean, I think that's a super cool concept. And so we went out um, with Crowdcube and we uh, also are negotiating a, a partnership deal that will potentially come and fit along alongside that. So we might close the round a, a bit more than was out on Crowdcube. And now we're nicely over funding. So depending when this podcast airs, we, we may have closed the round or if not, get on Crowdcube and check us out. But yeah, I mean, I think as a founder, you're almost in a perpetual state of fundraising I mean I remember someone saying that to me early days I was like oh don't be ridiculous you know but now I understand what they meant because um, cash is king cash flow management is everything you're constantly burning cash if you're a fast growth brand so yeah you're you're almost in a perpetual state of raising which of course is, is consistently frustrating because you really want to be focused 100% on on your business growth but i think a smart founder's always got to keep um one eye on where that next raise may be coming from that said this is quite a big strategic one for us um and it and it may be the final one depending how how things grow 
Um, so it will either be penultimate or it'll be final. But I can't say I'll, I'll miss that kind of fundraising piece because it's, um, yeah, it's very arduous, as any um, founder knows. And there's a lot of time wasting. I hadn't really realised, um, you know, how much people sometimes, and if I'm allowed to use the word bullshit, but, but um, <laughs> uh, am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Absolutely, but, why know, not? Uh, okay, so, so as an ex-journalist, when, when I first came into this business, you know, it was very easy to be intimidated by sort of VC speak or financial speak or, you know, private equity uh, when you don't understand it. And now, you know, I made it my business to really understand it. And then you realise how many charlatans there are out in the in the London space who are kind of pretending they've got all these funds and they're not really doing really as much as they might do with them or not really ever having the funds in the first place. So you have to almost sort the wheat from the chaff, which can take time. And also is another reason why I like this idea of CrowdCube because you're really out there, you know, people can put in from £10 up to as much as £100,000. And that was from somebody that I'd never met before, you know, who, who did connect via the platform. So I think that's really cool. That is really cool. And you, you are building a tribe. You're building brand ambassadors who will then promote and share your products. Going back to that exactly. lifestyle. Exactly. And I think that's historically, yeah. And I think that's why drinks brands in particular have a very um, strong relationship um, of being successful on Crowdcube, you know. And I, I think that, that you can really, as you say, build your tribe and take people along for the journey, which is really exciting. Mm. And so, what are you, will you be doing with the money? How are you going to invest it? We've never spent a penny on marketing, which. Um, a lot of people looking outward in have been mystified by. I mean, it, we've almost been a victim of our own success in that regard. And I think I mentioned that my husband's a publicist, a comms director, and I was an ex-journalist. So we were all about the story and we did manage, you know, to have the stars align with timing, call that luck, what you will. And so that was all really aligned with us. So, so to date, we've made all of our noise, you know, being in the Times, being in Vogue, being, you know, you name the publication, TV, radio, we've probably been on it or come close to, 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 to being on it. And so it almost was at the point where, you know, I remember speaking to a journalist the other day and they were like, oh yeah, Amanda, we really like you. You know, we love your champagne. I think if I pitch another story to my editor, that would be an advertisement. So I think we've already kind of pumped as much as we can out of the, the, the story in the, in the London marketplace at the moment. We've got what I think is a hugely exciting and potentially game-changing bottle launching um, in 2019, which is naughty, um, which means that my portfolio really comes full circle, playing into the, uh, you know, the moral of drink beautifully or not drinking at all, which is this organic and non-alcoholic sparkling, um, which will bring the party to the table, but without wow. any alcohol. So that will launch 2019. So, you know, marketing budget, getting naughty, really out there and proud. All of those things, um, you know, are really key to get us to the next stage, as, as, well as, as well as some budget towards the international growth, because we've got some really key international markets and we need to make sure that we support and grow those appropriately. So those are the really the key sort of touch points for the, the spend of the raise in, in 2019. Just give us an understanding of the key markets. What locations are they, just briefly? 
Sure. So we have got um, a really nice sort of platform from which to grow now in, in America. Um, we're available to, to sell in, in key states and we've got a geo-specific website. So, so that uh, is pulled through um, with a company called Wine Direct. So, so we've got the e-commerce piece in place there that we need to support and grow. And then we've got um, a few key placements in, in some cool places in key cities. Uh, so so we, we've really got a focus in growing, particularly in California. And we've got a few key placements in, in New York. And we've had stock for a while, actually, in, in Boston. We've been doing, doing some nice things in Boston for a while. Um, so the U.S. is, is highly relevant. Um, we've got a really interesting growth trajectory in South Africa. Um, we've found an amazing partner there. And... Um, the Italian ambassador at our Johannesburg launch came up and took a photograph with me and thanked me for helping to put Italian wine on the map in South Africa, which was something rather lovely that I never would have expected. And New Zealand is a really interesting growth market for us. Um, I mean, all of these places, you know, in the pockets where we are, they're places where you've got a really cool city culture. You've got a very strong movement in, in the understanding of kind of cool, healthy food and healthy living but still wanting to party canada we are fingers crossed um going to launch with the monopoly across the next 12 to 18 months once we get the go ahead um with the lcbo so that's a new focus um and hong kong we should be doing some nice interesting growth uh, things there but there's lots of different touch points but those are the key key ones at the moment interesting and there's a lot of opportunity for growth then Oh, yeah, and I've missed out, actually. Probably one of our most exciting but unexpected um, focuses, which is South America. We've got um, an incredible New Mexican partner, and now we are growing across Argentina and Chile, Costa Rica. So that's all coming on board as well across the next 12 to 18 months. In terms of equity that you're looking to put up i'm sure the information's on crowdcube in terms of um, making investment from a consumer perspective and potentially high net worth individuals uh, but from an institutional investment standpoint are there some ongoing conversations there yeah absolutely and we decided quite strategically not to accept private equity money um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but a really key one is I, I have someone I work with very closely who's done the blank sheet of paper thing, grown a drinks brand, had quite a famous exit. And I've got the expertise around me. And so we felt with the team, we've got some really great talent. We've got the advisors. We didn't really need to take that private equity money where someone sticks themselves on the board and they would have less experience actually in my specific journey with the lifestyle drink sort of crossover subsection than my existing advisor. So then you think to yourself, well, why am I doing this? And that again takes me back to that idea of of the Crowdcube sort of democracy and that way of, of raising funds. Obviously, the flip side of that is if you're not taking big money early and you're not giving away that big chunky piece and you're not, you know, how are you going to still have the fast growth? So that's obviously a challenge that, that, that is, is faced. But I think that this is really the smart way to achieve what we want.
We're a very lean, nimble team in the UK. It's interesting. It's not the sort of business where you need a ton of people. I mean, all I really need is the right people with the right brains in the right roles doing a brilliant job. Now that obviously sounds simple. It's harder than, you know, harder than it, it might sort of seem when you are hiring. But right now I've got a crack team, you know, and that's why we're, we're building them into the share structure. Because I think it's important that, you know, for those people who are loyal, who are with you on the journey, who will get their hands dirty, that they're rewarded ultimately. But the way the model works is, you know, we manage that piece from London. We're a London British-based business. Actually, we just got onto the, um, the Mayor's International Business Programme, which is exciting and useful for our international growth. We're a London-based business selling internationally and, and selling that kind of London story, as it were. And then the partners we sign with internationally, they need to love the brand, but ultimately we support them. We're in market, you know, twice a year or so, but they're then doing the selling and the distribution. So that's how the model works. And the e-commerce sort of side of, of the UK business, we've not even scratched the surface. And that's another potential growth area for us uh, in the UK that we can give some some real love to going forward but again you don't I don't need a ton of people sitting in an office so that's why it's quite an interesting model in that sense in terms of overheads so let's talk more about you as the individual Amanda uh, the okay this is, there was a story I read first of all about Thompson and Scott selling out in Selfridges a few years ago now uh, three times in one week <laughs> but what I'm curious about is how did you open up that account selfridges that business relationship in the first place how did you go about doing that i always had this vision at the beginning that you know champagne halo effect luxury brand positioning so i set my heart on selfridges i was like where do trends start and and, and a few years back and and, and i'm sure still to, to, to a large extent you know selfridges is 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 the big player there and so i stumped up a ton of cash at the time i remember actually calling my bank and that was another credit card complicated deal because i'd not long come back from france and i took a small stand at the festival called taste in regent's park and actually for a you know, almost loan operator like me at that point with one champagne, with all the debt I'd accrued from my studying. Um, I remember that was a hugely expensive, in inverted commas, gamble. But I knew that, that the Selfridges directors and, uh, you know, the key sort of buyers and tastemakers would come. And so we managed to secure a story just that weekend, that key taste weekend. It was a really hot summer, I remember. And I dragged my husband into work and we were... And he was still running his own business. He's got a, his own sort of PR consultancy. So he was sort of having to do conference calls in his ear while he was pouring champagne and helping me. And we managed to get into the Telegraph Food and Drink. They had a, a page in their, in their Saturday magazine then. And, and I was the featured entrepreneur. And that was really a kind of game-changing moment. And so we got a bit of media buzz. And then we were on the Grazia um, going up sort of barometer. So we had a couple of key bits of press then. And then when um, Nicola Waller, who, who was then the, the key person to buy at Selfridges, and I wanted to build really in the food section. And that again was seen as a controversial thing because normally wines go into the wine section. I wanted to get into the restaurants and the food section because for me, that, that was where really you could build a trend. And so we had, um, we had the then sort of Grazia editor and, and Nicola, the director of food, taste and champagne and I remember that moment of sort of holding my breath 
does she like it? Does she like it? You know, and, and then she loved it. And, you know, that, that for me, I was like, okay, if I sell one bottle of skinny champagne and Selfridges, I've got my Halo account. I am stocked in Selfridges. No one can argue with me. And that's when I knew I, I was in business. Amazing. Amazing. What a story. And so are there any particular lessons over the course of your journey to date uh, that you could share with the listeners uh, that you, maybe just one that you could share? Well, I got to say many, but uh, I mean, at the risk of sounding flippant, don't, don't ever start a business unless you really freaking are prepared to eat, breathe and sleep what you're doing. I think there's so much um, excitement, hyperbole in the world of entrepreneurialism. And it's kind of sexy at the moment. It's probably the sexiest career out there looking outward in. And of course, the dichotomy between the reality of being an entrepreneur, it's the biggest chasm I can't even tell you. And of course, you know, I mean, I'm in the champagne business, the most glamorous business of all. But my job, of course, is to make other people feel glamorous, make other people feel special. Everything might be crumbling around me in terms of my business day. But when I'm out there, I sure as hell have got to put my game face on and sell that champagne and sell the dream. And I think that not enough is spoken about about the, the veneer of that. It's a bit like that kind of Instagram world versus the, the, the real world in a way. And of course, most entrepreneurs are never in a position to really dig into the dark side of it until they've exited successfully, you know. And you sure as hell wouldn't want to be I suppose a woman an ethnic minority anything that might in the business world not be the norm and really open up about all of your weaknesses and vulnerabilities because that's diametrically opposed with what you've signed up to do which is deliver potentially a really big exit to a fast growth company so therein lies the irony so my lesson would be you better sure as hell love what you're doing and don't just chase the money because you'd be an absolute fool that's great thank you and with regards to living and breathing the world of entrepreneurship, your business, your the products that you're delivering, the experiences you're wanting to, to give to your customers, what do you do to get away from it all? How do you get headspace again? I don't really. I do have some balance uh, with my lovely children, I, I suppose, in the sense that children are a great leveler. And when my 10-year-old son wants to play Star Wars Lego, you know, then that's what I, I have to focus on. Kids are great at calling you out. You know, I've been known to hide in the bathroom, dealing with my emails or jumping on a late night conference call, you know, and of course your son's like, well, mom, you're like all about no tech at the table or, you know, and of course, and you're like, shit, you know, yeah, I'm, 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 pra I'm never practicing what I preach. So kids are a great leveler. When, you, when you're with your children, you've got to focus on, on what they need. And then uh, weights and yoga. Well, if, if I'm training and I'm training hard enough, then I, I, can't, I, I can't think about anything other than the pain so that's probably the only time <laughs> i switch so, off <laughs> brilliant so as an entrepreneur do you look to any entrepreneurs or business people out in the big wide world that you aspire to be or who would you feel comfortable sitting in the same room as i love meeting 
any and every entrepreneur because I, I always say there's a certain understanding and camaraderie and and club that you're in and you you have shared pain in your eyes actually whether you've exited for however many billions or whether you failed on your journey it doesn't matter because it's never really about the money it's about something always much bigger and deeper I suppose closest to me in that respect, in, in terms of, of working and understanding their journey and looking to them for advice, um, is a guy called Patrick Franzen, who has, has built a, a drinks brand and, and who actually was an old friend. And it's kind of interesting because I, I knew him actually before he was successful, which is, which is quite interesting, I think. And I, and I always think about any of my friends, rich, poor, whatever, you know, I always think if they're the same, before, after, you know, then, then that's, that's really how life should be. As women in the business world, I'm, I'm always interested to look at people's journeys, every shape or form, and I don't get enough time with, with lots of women that I know who are building businesses, and we always sort of love it when we get a few minutes together. Chrissy Rucker, who grew the White Company, I suppose is, let's be honest, probably the most well-known woman in business in the UK today. She's been hugely helpful to me. You know, she, early days, she put my champagne in, in her white company catalogue and she invited me recently to a fundraiser. And it's a lovely club to be in. Anya Heimarch, early days, the fashion designer, she collaborated on an early stage event with me. There's an incredible camaraderie, I think, in the entrepreneur world. And that is, is a lovely thing, actually. You mentioned inspirational, very successful entrepreneurial women. And I truly believe that there need to be more of them and uh, they need to be promoted as much as possible uh, to give young upcoming starlets of uh, the entrepreneurial world to, to have confidence, take confidence, to drive that diversity. The work that you're doing is certainly doing that as well, in my opinion. So, uh, well, that's lovely to hear. And that's partly why I do put my head above the parapet and I do, I get asked to do speaking events and things and, and I don't take any of them for the money at all. I only really take them at the moment when I think I can share something valuable and inspire people. And that's, that's always interesting to me. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, at the moment, it, it, there's a lot of focus on, on, on female entrepreneurs, uh, obviously, because <laughs> we're, we're a rare breed, apparently. Um, but, but I think let's also not, you know, focus on that uh, at the expense of, of recognising other forms of diversity. You know, you mentioned the word diversity, but I think black women and men, you know, different ethnicities, different sexualities, you know, and still white men in business. You know what I mean? I think that it's important that the that everybody can be inspired if they've got something in them. Uh, and often it is just lack of confidence that's sort of giving people that peace. And, and I was talking with a guy in a coffee shop the other day, a young guy, you know, and he was really nice, but really timid. And we got chatting and he said he wasn't very happy with his job. And I, I tend to be a, a chatty person anyway. It's a good skill for an entrepreneur when you chat to everybody. And, and anyway, kind of long story short, he lost his mojo doing his graphic design course. Uh, and I've just um, recently sort of put him forward. I've got a few connections on LinkedIn and now he's got some, some work coming. Those are the things that matter, I think, in a day-to-day. -day. Rather than focusing constantly on the big picture and the end game, I think if I can do small things scattered throughout my week where I can be helpful and inspire people who, who might not have the confidence, then I get great pleasure doing that. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. So time has flown. 
there's a couple more questions I'd like to ask you uh, before we finish up. In, in terms of continual learning, is there any particular materials that you are reading or listening to that you can share to the listeners and recommend that helped your journey so far? Yeah, I'm constantly reading articles, entrepreneur books. Um, I loved Shoe Dog, the Nike story. I really loved that. That there was something about that where I think you realise with, with with so many of the big, exciting, crazy brands. Uh, that you started, you were on the journey that they're on. And I think there's something quite special and important about that when you're suffering the, the you know, the painful knocks of the journey. I think of, of realizing that, that everybody who's built a successful brand from a blank sheet of paper started where you started and, and suffered the pain you suffered and, and kept on going forward one foot in front of the other. And so I do love those stories, the really inspirational ones, you know, where you can can kind of find the resonating points. And, and podcasts, podcasts are useful. I still haven't actually found my perfect one, but maybe it's going to be yours. <laughs> oh, you flatter me. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, as long as you're comfortable hearing yourself, then that's great. No, I've got The last thing I'm ever going to do is listen to my own. I'm talking about the other really interesting people you've interviewed. I'm looking to build that community of uh, people who I'm interviewing as well as complementary uh, relationships and who knows business partnerships could be developed off the back of it. Uh, that, that would be fantastic to hear. It's all about following your journeys. Uh, you mentioned that uh, it could be dismissed, uh, sort of the hardship very quickly in a sentence. But what I'm trying to do is document your journey a moment in time and then come back every year to see how you're progressing. Uh, one question that will help understand what you've learned over the course of 12 months is what would you do differently knowing what you know now <laughs> so many things so many things but but then it wouldn't be the journey would it i'm not a great one for for hindsight and dwelling on it but you you know they say you learn most from your your mistakes don't they i probably would have raised more funds earlier sooner which so many people talk about later but of course you you know whatever you've got in your bank whatever size your business that war chest is, is so important and going back to that point about the perpetual fundraising i think that you know if you can raise the smart money but then again it wouldn't necessarily be at the right price and, and different sacrifices would have been made so i don't know if i even categorically believe that now, if you think about the value you get from the money the collaboration and partnerships could be as important. Absolutely. Hmm. Um, I, I, I think um, I probably am, am less trusting now. I'm probably more cynical. I, I, I think that's a shame, but it's true. I suppose you get your fingers burnt every now and then, but you listen to or you think about how certain conversations, certain relationships have gone, and then you, you do test. You, you are less trusting to protect yourself moving forwards and yes it could be a limiting factor but it's also an, a wise trait to have at times so it's being self-aware of when you're being a little more cynical to try and under, understand the context of what's going on elsewhere yeah, I, think yeah. I like this you see i always think these sorts of conversations are very therapeutic 
talking about yourself it's very interesting for me i never i never talk about myself you see and i never have it's interesting i always think that therapy it must be something that i would probably quite enjoy <laughs> <laughs> entrepreneurial therapy with bash there you go i'm up for that i'm definitely up for that <laughs> that's the second podcast <laughs> no amanda it's been a pleasure thank you so much for your time i've really enjoyed it really have thank you great and uh I look forward to speaking again in the next 12 months. But over the course of the 12 months, I will be updating the audience, the listeners of what um, the latest news is about Thompson and Scott. So I hope the funding round grows additionally. Get onto Crowdcube, everybody. Have a look. Remember, uh, make your own decisions. Uh, take advice. But yes, I wish you every success. It's really kind. And hopefully we can meet for a drink next time. One of mine. Absolutely. So what do you think? We'll have another interesting story to dive into next week. Looking forward to it already. Some questions to you in the meantime. What is your story? What is your reality right now? And what are you working towards? Let me know. So you can connect with me on Twitter. Just type in Bash in the search and you'll find me. So Bash, B-A-S-H. Easy. On Instagram, it's Bash Reality. So that's Bash underscore reality. And on LinkedIn, Benjamin Ashmore. Make sure you subscribe and until next week, cheers.